forever. Dog. I studied with Prue Gulliger out here who taught me a lot about the camera and the sweet spot and sending your sexual energy. He said, it's all sex. You gotta make love to the camera. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless or The Big Bang Theory or one episode of the NBC One and Done Happy Family from like 2003. John Larroquette, Christine Baranski. It was a good show. Good, good writing on that one. Our guest today is Beth Grant. Beth, where do you start with Beth Grant? She's in the pivotal scene in Rain Man. We talk about that. We also talk about her work on the Mindy Project and improvising with children and No Country for Old Men. And we talk a little bit about the bitterness and resentment that can be part of, but doesn't have to be part of this business. It's a really great talk, and she's really fun to listen to. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Beth Grant. So you were you were born in Alabama, but you grew up in, in North Carolina. Is that correct? Yeah, we moved around a lot. I was born in Alabama and uh, don't really remember living there, although I did visit it two years ago, and it was terrific to go to that little town. It's the town where the rock group Alabama lives. Really? And where they were from. So if we'd stayed there, I guess I would have gone to school with Alabama. <laughs> I guess you would have, yeah. That's incredible. Uh, but then we moved to Georgia, Columbus, then Atlanta, then Charlotte, and then finally Wilmington, North Carolina. Moved um, around a lot. I was always the new kid on the block. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, that leads me seamlessly to my next question. Did you have, were you an extrovert because of that, or did it kind of push you inside yourself? Uh, I was an extrovert. Um, and it's, it's, the funny thing is, I'm really an introvert. You know, I really am. I, I hear this from so many actors. I was just going to say, we hear that on the podcast constantly. Go ahead. I learned to push through it and I learned to figure out, you know, who the cool kids were and how to get to be in the right crowd. And I, my, my the way I did it was I became the leader. I would start a club and I would invite people to join my club. Or in fourth grade, I had a jazz party. I didn't even know what jazz was, but I invited people over and we played music on the patio and my mother made some chips and dip or whatever. And so I learned to be a leader and, but I hated it. You know, I never wanted to be a leader. I would, I would, I much preferred the idea of being Lana Turner sitting on a bar stool being discovered. And, and, and Schwab's. Yeah. yeah, at Schwab's and being, you know, a beautiful blue eyed blonde cheerleader. But that wasn't who I was. And I didn't, took me a long time to figure that out. So. You've, you mentioned your mom. You've credited her in other interviews with sort of influencing your decision to become an actor. Was she in the arts herself? She she wanted to be an actress. She grew up in a small town in Georgia, West Point, Georgia, and she um, had a, an uncle who had been to Hollywood, and he was an engineer, and he'd helped, I guess, build the first freeways or something, and his best friend was Jerry Colonna, who was a friend of Bob Hope's and was a comedian with big eyes and... Anyway, he filled her head with lots of dreams and told her she was cuter than Shirley Temple and uh, taught her to read the newspaper and think outside the box. And, uh, you know, so he influenced her and then she had these dreams, but she was too scared to really pursue them. She did study uh, what what did they call it? Elocution. Oh, yeah. Which is funny in the South. <laughs> but she had a lovely Georgia soft R accent. Not one of those horrible redneck accents. And she was a liberal in the South. She was very different. She, you know, uh, fought for civil rights for yeah, the ERA. Did I, yeah, I was going to say, I, I heard that she was an ERA campaigner for, for, yeah. the, for the Equal Rights yeah. Amendment. That's yeah. uh, amazing. She was very was... different, very different for a Southern belle. But anyway, she married and, uh, you know, wanted all of her dreams to happen through me. <laughs> so she tried to make me fit that, you know, mold, but she wanted everything. She wanted me to be a beautiful Southern belle and be gracious and pour tea, marry Prince Charles, be a senator, be a movie star, be, a, you know, I remember one time saying to her, Mama, I will do whatever you want. Just choose one thing. Um, but I think in the end, the only thing I was ever really successful at was showing off and, you know, being an actor and 
Um, so that's what ended up happening. I would have chosen a, a simpler lifestyle and a softer lifestyle if I had been capable of it, but I wasn't. This was the only thing that I really fit. Well, so say all of us. Yeah. What um, um, was she comfortable when you started working? Am well, I just projecting my own family shit on no, you? I apologize. She, no, no, no. I mean, we're we all are so similar in the end. I think yeah. actors. That's why we all love each other. That's why I married. You know, I've been married three times, but this one has lasted thirty six years because he's an actor and he gets it. Yeah. It took so long for me to earn my living. I was thirty six before I started earning my living full time, and really thirty eight before I got a big bump, which was Rain Man, uh, and really started, you know, a, a, a recognizable career. But she loved it, but it wasn't what she had in mind. She wanted me to be a movie star. You know, she wanted me to be Joan Crawford, or I don't know who she had in mind. Loretta Young, I think, might have been one of her goals or dreams for me. And so it after I went to a great acting teacher, and he really taught me a about myself as a uh, character actress. Which, which one? Which actor? Milton Katsalas. Oh, Milton yeah, sure. Kitsalas. And that was out and, here in L.A. Right. I mean, I had other great teachers. I had a great teacher in New York, Ernie Martin. I studied with Clue Gulliger out here, who taught me a lot about the camera and the sweet spot. And Oh, I love Clue Gulliger. I didn't realize he taught. Yeah, I think he still does. I mean, yeah. he got really into horror movies yeah. uh, the last years, but... You know, he was in Last Picture Show, which was mm -hmm. one of my favorite movies, and he was so brilliant in it. And um, he taught a crazy little class, and we would go on location to do our scenes. Oh, and wow. So, and the class would then become, we didn't shoot it back then, but it was like 1975, 76, 77 maybe, maybe two or three years. And um, the, but the class would act like they were the crew. We'd go to the zoo, or we went out to Pierce College, or we went over to Fairfax. And when it was your turn to do the scene, everybody'd be gathered around, and he might do this, you know, as though he were the camera. And so he really, you know, taught me about film. And um, I'm very grateful to him forever. And that sweet spot, you know, and he taught me about sending your sexual energy. He said it's all sex. You know, the camera's all about sex, so you got to make love to the camera. That's a terrific little clue, you know. I think it's a hard thing for character actors to grasp um, because a lot of us aren't um, necessarily cast in the roles that are uh, performatively sexual. Um, right. So I, I think right. it, it, it is an extra effort to be like, yes, we need to be charming. and But... <laughs> Are we, are we, uh, we're, we're police informants. We're witnesses. We're like, why, why, why are we, how, how, why do we have to make love to anything? Yeah. But that's, that's a, a really, would, would crowds gather when you were doing that? No. No. It's, interesting. You know, it's Hollywood. Everyone's so blasé. <laughs> I never, I don't think we even, we may have gotten one look at the zoo. Maybe. <laughs> That's magnificent. When did you, so, so I'm, I'm fascinated. When did you, so you're growing up in, in these small towns throughout the South and your mom has aspirations. Your dad sells poultry. When did you realize this was something that you could do for a living that you Beth Grant could do for a living? That I actually could do for a living and that I wanted to do for a living. I mean, okay. I always had a, question. yeah, love, love, hate thing. I mean, you, it gets back to your original question of my mother. Did she like it when I started my career? She loved it. She supported me. You know, she sent me money in New York, uh, but it wasn't what she had in mind. And when Rain Man finally happened, I mean, I knew it was going to change everything. I could tell, I mean, there's a whole crazy spiritual story. I was up in Big Sur. And I had a, Michael and I were trying to get pregnant and I was 38 and I had started working. I had been at the Amundsen in two successful plays. and Which plays? Uh, one Picnic with oh, wow. Gregory Harrison, Jennifer Jason Lee, who got me my first movie, which was called Undercover, right. which John Stockwell directed. 
And yeah. Jennifer taught me a lot about acting, too. I mean, I think she's one of the best actresses that's ever lived. If oh, you haven't fantastic. seen Last Exit to Brooklyn, you know, oh, she's that's just That's a brutal, incredible. I mean, that's a brutal performance. It's really hard to watch, but she's magnificent. Magnificent. It, yeah. and, um, so anyway, that, and then I did, oh, it was Gregory Harrison, Michael Learned, Rue McClanahan, Jennifer Jason Lee, and oh uh, Dick Van Patten. I mean, it was star-studded, brilliant directed by Marshall Mason, who was one of the founders of Circle Rep in New York. So I was working. And then we did um, oh, a Tennessee Williams play that's this, oh, Summer and Smoke at the opposite okay. with Christopher Reeve, Christine Lottie. My husband was in it. And I was playing Mrs. Bassett. And I had to wear a big old fat suit and have age makeup and a wig and my husband's on his knees proposing to Christine Lottie, and I barrel on stage, and I'm talking about Bastille Day. And I was grateful to be working and grateful for the chance to, you know, act on stage for a living. As you say, I'd start earning my living, but I hated it. <laughs> I hated the role. And because I, I just thought this is going to be my life, you know, these crazy characters. And I had embraced it and I knew that it was the key to success for me. But I mean, little girls do not grow up wanting to play Mrs. Bassett. You know, yeah. you grow up with all these archetypes that are taught to us, you know, Marilyn Monroe, as I say, Joan Crawford, Loretta Young, beauties. Um, and it, so it's demoralizing. Now, my husband didn't ever feel that way. I asked him once when we were dating, I said, okay, let's just say I make it. Let's just say that someday I get an award for playing. And I think at the time it was a, uh, the one that talked about, you can kiss my grits, you know. Flo. What, Flo. Uh, Polly Holiday. Right. I said, oh, let's say I get her career, which is a fabulous career. Right. And I, let's say I win an Emmy for that. How are you going to feel? sitting by my side at Emmy's playing this character. He said, well, I'd be proud. And I was like, what? what? A man that would be proud of that? And also, as you can tell, I'm very opinionated, talk a lot, that, 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 that. I wasn't sure that I would ever find a partner who would want all that, you know. And, um, but I found him, <laughs> you know, and this one director said to him once, he was going to visit me on the set. And he said, yeah, sure, you can come, but I don't know if you're going to want to see her looking like that. And he said, you don't know me. <laughs> so I have a fabulous husband and he's a character actor too. So he gets it. But anyway, so I had been uh, doing S Summer and Smoke and um, we went up to Big Sur and we weren't having success getting pregnant. And I was facing the real truth of my what my career was going to be not sure if I wanted it really and I pitched a fit and I went up on this hilltop in the at night and I yelled at the stars and I said okay fine I'll do whatever you want I'll have a baby or I won't have a baby I'll be a character actress or whatever you know and I came back down the hill all grumpy and the next day we were hiking and we came to a little cabin in Big Sur where the founders of Big Sur um, had raised 12 children. And it was, you know, the size of this room I'm in right now. And I looked at my husband, I said, you know, I don't think they've ever really done a pioneer woman. I'm gonna play a pioneer woman. And I'm gonna be strong and tough and be a mama bear and no makeup. Well, that next day, Driving down Pacific Coast Highway, we stopped in Solvang. We were going to spend the night in Santa Barbara. We stopped in Solvang. I checked my messages, and my agent says, you need to come back to L.A. You have an audition to play a pioneer woman. And it's Dustin Hoffman's next movie with Tom Cruise. And I knew then, I said, wait till they see this pioneer woman. And came back, went to the audition, no makeup, hair pulled back, I passed Barry Levinson in the hallway, and I recognized him because I was a big fan of yeah. his, you know, Baltimore movies and The yeah. Natural at that time, especially. Oh, that's right, yeah. And I saw him do a double take, and I think that's when I got it right there. And Wait, I before found, you read, even. Yeah, he knew I was what he wanted. He wanted this pioneer woman that was real and earthy. And uh, one of the casting directors told me later they had seen seven hundred women for that role. 
So he was being very particular. <laughs> That's incredible. I, I watched it last night. Um, right now? And, yeah. Oh, and I was, I, I, I didn't, I mean, it's such an icon. It's the, it's the four minutes to Wapner scene. It's, it's you, you let Hoffman and Cruz into your home with your, I lost count at five kids, might be six. Um, yeah, six. <laughs> uh, and um, it's very pioneery. You are, you are out there on the, on the frontier with a lot of children. But there is, you didn't have kids of your own yet, obviously. And there is this naturalism you've got with these kids where you, it, it, there's moments where you're just kind of talking to them and it feels improvised. It feels very. It was improvised. Yeah. yeah some of I, it was, I, I yeah. got that vibe because there was just something very natural about the way you were talking to these children. And I mean, you know, they always say don't work with children or animals. Certainly don't work with five <laughs> children. That's a terrible idea. And yet here you are on your first <laughs> And it's almost like that's so much pressure that you don't even realize that you're also with Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise, I imagine. Actually, there, it was a family of eight kids, oh but the oldest was too old. And then the youngest, a girl, there were uh, seven boys. And then they finally had a little girl who was the baby. And she was too young. Uh, and the oldest was too old. But Barry Levinson was so brilliant because when the little boy started crying, since you just saw it, you remember he started crying. Barry looked at me and he said, like, he was going to start rolling. He looked at Dustin. He looked at Tom. They all, they got in position and we just did the scene. And so whatever happened, happened. And by then we'd already done the porch scene and I had understood the way they were working, the rhythm of the improv and that, you know, Dustin was bringing, I mean, we had, uh, it was written beautifully, but they were, you know, loosey-goosey and it at first it was shocking to me because I came from theater and you know you don't suddenly you know play around but Dustin really loosened me up and he he had a I was using um, a diaper as though I'd been drying dishes with a diaper that was my little secret uh, you know not in the script but I was holding it in my hand and at one point Dustin took it from me and started chasing me around the front porch with it and later I he was loosening me up you know and helping me be more comfortable. And so anyway, when we went into play, yeah, the whole scene was shot with the kids never knowing the cameras were rolling. It, that's and, magnificent because there's not an, there's not a moment of like that cloying child actor stuff that you get sometimes. They're just there being kids. Yeah. And it feels great. I've had a few people tell me that despite his, his reputation for incredible intensity, um, Cruz is actually a delight to work with. Oh God. Yeah. He's fabulous. He's just the sweetest, sweetest guy. In fact, I told him, I remember being, I didn't wear any makeup and I just pulled my hair back in a ponytail and I went to the makeup guy and I said, is it okay? I said, Jack Nicholson doesn't wear makeup. Can I not wear makeup? And he looked at me and he said, abracadabra, you're done. Amazing. And so they let me do that. But we, that first day when I was in the makeup trailer, you know, I, for some reason I, I was talking about trying to get pregnant and Tom was very sweet and supportive about that. I don't know. We had a good connection, a personal connection right away. But the funny thing is I had gone there early, uh, you know, to how they put you on hold just in case of rain or whatever. And um, so I had gone over to the house where these kids lived and it was a self, uh, self-sustaining farm. The mother gave them haircuts. They were homeschooled. And she and I had gone to college together. Here what? we are in Oklahoma. We're in Hinton, Oklahoma, outside of Oklahoma City, as far away as you can get, we found out that we were there in the same dorm our freshman year in college. Now, she left, and of course, I never knew her, but what a coincidence. And I knew his brother, very famous artist, Dougherty, and um, it was just a weird coinkydink. And my whole life has been like that, just synchronicities. And when I get my ego out of the way and get my fear out of the way and can just show up, magic happens every day and that certainly was <laughs> proof to me that that was that I was destined for that role and I went back to see them I was shooting a movie in Oklahoma a couple of years ago and um, I got in touch with them and I asked our producer I said you know is there any way he said oh I love that idea and he called the news station and we went we met at that house and these kids all grown up with families and I have beautiful pictures of them. And it was, and they told me, I don't remember doing this, but apparently I told them a secret. I said, now make sure you talk 
make sure you have a line so you can get residuals. <laughs> so, so they didn't all get residuals, but I think three of them did. And they took that money and they divided it evenly and they invested in themselves and they're wildly successful. They have a big business. They have their own airplane. They fly around. They've all built beautiful houses on the same street together. It's incredible. Rayman changed their lives. Yeah. <laughs> um, what a lovely story. Hi, everybody. Tim Heidecker here. We have a brand new Office Hours that just came out of the oven. We've got legendary psych rocker Ty Siegel. And Doug is back from down under. G'day. G'day. And his mommy came with him. Mommy and Gary Lusenhop are here, too. Alicia let me know that she finished the White Album, has thoughts on that. So much more on this legendary episode of Office Hours. Find us on your podcast app of choice or watch us on YouTube at youtube.com slash office hours live. Who are the animals? Because I don't smell them. I was watching Speed the other night and I, the interesting thing about action movies, and I've only done one and a half really at the end of the day, <laughs> but, but, um, they, because they're so fast paced on screen, they take forever to shoot. They can be crushingly dull to shoot. What was your experience like in that bus? Spoiler alert. You don't last the entire film. You are, uh, you are, uh, your demise is meant to, uh, make us understand that Dennis Hopper is serious. Um, the tennis hopper is crazy as if we needed your death to tell us that. But the, the, what was the, was there a certain camaraderie on the bus? You guys were shooting on the, was it the 110? It uh, was under construction. Is that right? Yeah, it was just about to open. And oh my God, I have so many stories about that movie. The first thing is, um, it was not the script that I signed on for. Graham Yost wrote the original script and all, not all of us on the bus, but quite a few of us had backstories like, say, Poseidon Adventure or Towering right. Inferno. And um, mine was beautiful. I had a little dog on the bus. I had just gotten engaged. Uh, the character Sandy was playing um, was a stand-up comedian. I had been to the uh, club the night before to watch her show. We were friends because we rode the bus every day together. All of us knew each other. And with each person being picked up at a bus stop would sort of come their story. So maybe five or six of us had these backstories. So we go on Friday afternoon to have a table read and a costume parade. And we get the script, and it's been rewritten. And by Joss Whedon, as it turns out, oh, wow. never got a credit uh, on it. When I met him when I was doing um, Angel, I said, you ruined my part. And thank you for that, because it was a hit. You know, it's far <laughs> better to be in a hit movie than to have a big part in a non-hit. Fair so, enough. Which has happened many times. Uh, so anyway, um, we, re we opened the script and I said, oh my God, I have no part. And I have a baby by then, a nine-month-old baby. I'm still breastfeeding. I had thought that she would be coming to the set with me every day. I find out we're shooting on a freeway and that not only can't, I don't even want her to come to be there. And the trailer is a mile away because they're doing helicopter shots. So I was so miserable. And also, Sandra Bullock and I went to the same college, and I had heard about her. Now, will you keep mentioning this college? Where did you guys go? East Carolina University. Okay, great. In Greenville, North Carolina. And uh, I was the most successful actress to come out of there for many years. Uh, I had, you know, many television credits. I'd had a series. I had, you know, done Rain Man. I'd had done six movies the next year after Rain Man because there's nothing like four Academy Awards and $500 million to give you a little boost. Sure. So, you know, I, I was very proud of that. And then along came this Sandra Bullock. And she got a series. And she was a leading lady. And she was gorgeous. And we got our little uh, alumni, I don't know, brochure. And in it, they had this huge picture of her and this 
decent size, but much smaller picture of me. And I was like, well, I don't know about this. And she had done an interview with a local paper and he was a friend of mine. He, he said, oh, you got to call her. Here's her number. You guys are really going to get along. Well, I never called her because I was jealous. You sure. know, it's, it's a lesson of how jealousy, as Viola Davis said to me, we were working on this Operation Othello, a modern Othello, and we were talking about the theme of jealousy. And Viola said in her beautiful voice, you know, jealousy, stop you. And it's the truth. It just stops you. So I was saying to Anna earlier that, you know, uh, attitude monitors talent. That came from Milton, but it does. You got to have a good attitude. I don't always have a good attitude. I get old and grumpy and I have to work at it. And um, I guess we all do, but I'm, I'm, anyway. nodding, I'm nodding vociferously. Yeah. No, okay. by all means. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, you know. I We all, you know, one doesn't even have to be that old to be grumpy. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've been, I've been playing it off since my thirties, but uh, carry on. <laughs> Maybe it goes with being a character actor. But anyway, so we're, I see this script and my part's gone. We don't know who the lady is, leading lady is. And I had actually wanted my friend Jennifer Gray to do the role. And, um, I don't know who I had mentioned that to, maybe just Jennifer. It's not like I had campaigned for her, but I, I think I remember telling somebody, oh, I think Jennifer Gray would be great. Maybe I mentioned it to the director. But anyway, I'm opening the script. I see my parts gone. I don't know who our leading lady is. And in walks this young actress from East Carolina University, Sandra Bullock. And I go, oh my God, it's that girl. <laughs> but she turned and she looked at me and she smiled that beautiful, open Sandra Bullock smile, which is real, which is why it's so beautiful. And I fell in love on the spot. And the jealousy flew away and the envy flew away and there was nothing but love. It was magical. As I say, my life is magical when I get that stuff out of the way. So she made all the difference. She came over right away. Oh my God, da 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 da. And we started talking about teachers that we'd had in common. And she did a, a fantastic impression of the head of our department and got me laughing right away. So we were as thick as thieves. And so we were as thick as thieves through the whole shoot. And she would keep my energy up. You know, I don't think that was her goal, but she was just so funny, so cute. And we had such wicked senses of humor. And we would do little improv moments for Jan. And he, he would laugh a lot. And so we just had a blast and she was a salsa dancer. So at like four o'clock, we would have chocolate, maybe put on some salsa music. And, you know, I'm not a real dancer. She's a real dancer, but I would dance. And, you know, we were very lucky to have a leading lady who had so much uh, good energy. And Keanu was fabulous. He was sweet. And uh, the first day I saw him there, he was sitting there. He was all buff. I never knew a Keanu like that. And I said, wow, you look great. This is a, this is so great for you to be, you know, being an action hero. And he said, I hope so. You know, but he didn't know. <laughs> Actors never know. Um, but he was a delight and a joy. And we would cut up with him sometime and make up movie plots or a sitcom and we would act it out. And I can remember him in Long Beach falling on the grass and kicking like a cockroach. And I mean, we just, we, they, they kept me going. Well, it comes boy. across, you know, I, I, again, I was just watching it the other day and, and there is that moment where you try to make a break for it right before the, um, the end of your character's arc, we'll say. And, um, there was a real moment where the way she reacts to you doing something that rash, there's a connection there. And it was a reminder of like, oh, these people ride the bus together every day. So it's one of those things where, you know, even if all those deleted script pages were deleted, you still knew it. Right. That's right. It's and like, that's it's what like your character is supposed to have a secret, you know? Yeah, that's exactly right. Like I was a hero in the first script. I gave him CPR. He died about, he was, he had a heart attack. He wasn't shot. Oh, wow. And um, I gave him CPR and I volunteered to be the first off the bus and was killed. Of course, it all changed. I was the whiny coward. What Jan said to me, I went to him, I said, Jan, you know, I'm sacrificing a lot here. I have this baby. These are going to be long hours. And I said, there's no part. And he said, trust me, I'm going to shoot this like a European film. And uh, I will get great coverage. And we needed a coward. There were too many heroes. We had to have a coward like Richard Chamberlain in Towering Inferno, you know. <laughs> so I was the, you know, designated coward. What do you um, think he meant by shoot it like a European movie? 
Well, he had all of us were dressed in earth tones. Mm-hmm. You know, we weren't like all bright, like with that big blue bus. He toned it all down. And he wanted us to all be real. And I think you're right. I had never thought about that, actually. Very astute of you, sir, mm. that we had that history no matter what. And then the connection, the actual connection uh, led by Sandy made a huge difference. It really did. And I, I honestly, another little secret is I came back after I died and I was I sat down in the front of the bus so that she could glance at me, you know, uh, and have that there so that she didn't have to, you know, I mean, that's a hard thing to make up. Somebody's getting ready to die and right in your face. So, uh, in fact, Keanu said, what are you doing here? You're dead. <laughs> and I said, well, we're still doing the scene, though. Uh, so I did her off camera, and that was a thrill for me because it's, it's I felt nice that I yeah be of service. Is that what you were going to say? Well, no, it's just nice to, you know, recognize that you still need an eyeline, even if you're dead, you know, the other actor, your scene partner still will need you uh, to a certain extent. I think that is a a wonderful way to be of of service. That's uh, Well, you know, you learn that from all the greats. I've been so fortunate to work with so many wonderful actors. And I remember little Steve Gutenberg on a movie and it was very hard for him to give me an eyeline. And I literally, he positioned himself. He must have been so uncomfortable behind the camera, all twisted up, just to give me an eyeball for my, you know. And that's a great lesson, you know, to watch and say, oh, that's what we do. We will go to any length. Now, sometimes people don't want it. The other day I was working and, um, you know, with COVID and everything and the protocols, they came over and they asked, Somebody, is it okay if she leaves? And they say, oh, yeah, sure. And sometimes it's sort of easier to do it to a mark or a tennis ball or whatever. <laughs> but, um, you know, it depends on the the scene. Well, COVID has made being on set roughly 35 to 40% less fun. I mean, it's still a great job, um, but it has definitely taken the camaraderie down yeah. a peg it, or two. It really has. It's different. I mean, I have a funny picture of me. Um, I'm working on Dollface, this wonderful series. Kat Dennings is our brilliant, wonderful star. She's such a great leader. But we were shooting in a big facility and they had me in a room. I look like Hannibal Lecter. I mean, I'm sitting there all by myself with my mask and my shield. There's no one around. I'm down the end of a long hallway. And I'm telling you, I look like I'm in prison. And it was just, you know, them taking care of me and keeping me away from all the extras and stuff. But it's pretty, it has been very different. It has been very different, but I've worked. I've, the protocols are so good. I hope they don't loosen up. There's the whole new bunch of jobs have been created from COVID. The whole COVID compliance department that shows up and make sure that your mask goes on the second after they yell cut. Make sure that your mask isn't sticking out of your pocket, which can ruin a take. <laughs> I bet. Hasn't happened to me personally. It totally has. It totally has. <laughs> it totally has been my fault. <laughs> One of the things that I think is so fascinating and inspiring about your career is that you have a, an astonishing three Best Picture winners on your resume. Yeah, it is, is astonishing. I don't Rain even Man, know. No Country for Old Men, The Artist, um, and firmly in the in yeah, I'm firmly in the in the no small roles. They're each they're each parts that you need to each of those characters helps us realize the stakes of what's going on into the leads, you know. Um as, as small as the role is in the artist, you still need to understand that he's really hit hard times because Peppy's got a maid now and it's a whole it, it sets that up really nicely. What was that like specifically on the artist? What was it like working silently? It was very different. (laughs) You know, the scene you're talking about um, when he discovers that she's been buying all this, uh, all of his stuff that he's been auctioning off. Uh, That day that we shot that, he played that music from Vertigo that he used in the film. And uh, to me, I mean, that's when he won the Academy Award because in that scene, when he starts taking those sheets off and that music was playing on the set, there was not, I mean, you hear this expression, but there was not a dry eye. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it was so easy for me to tear up when the camera was on me, but the whole crew teared up, which I've never seen. I mean, no, it's hard to make the crew. I've made the crew giggle. I've never made them cry. That's. I've never. uh, I I mean, I've done some pretty dramatic stuff. I've never seen them cry either. But it. He was fabulous, and he never said a word in that. It was, and of course, the music is great music. But it was the way he whipped those sheets off and the realization sinking in. Just brilliant. So, but when I was first, um, I had to audition for it too, which, you know, I'm like, I don't audition for small roles like that anymore. And a silent movie, I said, what, what's the audition going to be like? And I told my husband, I said, I don't know how to do a silent movie. I'm not interested in this. Nobody's going to see this movie. <laughs> I figured it would play in the Limleys for two days and go away. And um, so my husband sat me down. And put on some Charlie Chaplin movies. And I said, oh, right. They're great. And this acting is fabulous. And Charlie Chaplin, what a genius, right? Um, So I said, okay, I'll audition for this for sure. And it's a French director. This will be a great experience for me, you know, with no dialogue. Still never thinking anyone would see this movie. But I went to the audition and did it. And... um, got it and then on set then they were taking such there was such detail i mean the costume designer who won an academy award you know that he had gotten antique clothes for all of us and they were i mean real and the hairdos and everything and i am in other scenes that you can hardly see me i don't think people would even recognize me but the attention to detail you know that's just it, the way the set was even if you didn't even have a line and the camera barely covered you you were dressed to the nines makeup hair every inch of you and uh so i did notice the attention to detail and i thought wow this thing might turn out pretty good and i thought the leads were both great yeah. um but little did i know i remember i was in new york my daughter it was her first year at juilliard and we were visiting and i had um actually directed a short film with Octavia Spencer, my daughter, Lauren Miller Rogan, uh, Anna O'Reilly, Jennifer Zaborowski. And it was a, it was a silent Francis film, Fisher. wasn't it? Silent film, Francis yeah. Fisher. Yeah. And of course, I was inspired by the artist. Yeah. But I said, I'm going to take it even another level. No dialogue listed at all. No one speaks. And it's just going to be wall-to-wall music. My, so, so no uh, intertitles or anything? Nothing. No. Okay just music, just action. And Lauren Miller was my, Lauren Miller Rogan, as she goes by now, who's hilarity for charity, race, she and Seth have raised so much money for Alzheimer's research. She's fabulous. Anyway, she was my writer and co-writer eventually. She said, you got to be my co-writer. You can't just be the director. But at one point we had a table read and I said, Lauren, I'm going to propose something really crazy but let's cut the dialogue, <laughs> you know, after she's written this script. <laughs> and she said, okay, let's try it. So they were all game. And I just had the most wonderful women. And I just had a blast doing it. I really did. And we did, you know, we shot it in two weekends. We found this wonderful location in like Valley Village, which was originally designed as a French village back in, ni- in the 1930s. And some of it is still there. And we used one of the little offices. I mean, one of the little shops there. Um, in, in Valley Village? Yeah, right, right on. next uh, to Van Nuys? Uh, yeah, Van Nuys. Uh, it's um, on uh, between Whitsitt and Laurel on Magnolia Boulevard. And you'll see, if you look at the post offices there, you can see the, what's left of the little French village. And so, it's yeah, and that's where we shot. And uh, so it was just fabulous. And we had started submitting to festivals, and we were in the Soho International Festival at the same time that the artist was coming out. I was in New York. And I was, I'd forgotten how I was trying to get tickets to go. I just wanted to go see it at the New York Film Festival. I wasn't trying to be part of the press or anything. My part was way too small. But somehow they got wind of the fact that I was getting tickets, that I was there. And I, they got in touch with me and they said, don't you want to sit with um, the stars? And I said, well, sure, yes. And uh, would you like to be part of a panel? And then I had been in No Country for Old Men and Rain Man, and what they wanted 
to, they used me quite a bit with the promotion because what they wanted was to say, this is an American film with American actors. Yes, the two leads are French. Yes, the director and the DP, but everybody else is American. They hired something like, was it possible, 160 talking roles. We got a special award from Los Angeles for being the only film that year shot in Los Angeles that was nominated. And oh my God. all those, all that work for all those American actors, American crew. So that was what they were trying to emphasize with me. And I was thrilled. I mean, I well, felt it's an amazing cast. It's, I mean, John Goodman's in there. James Cromwell is in there. Um, it just and there's this. It's Malcolm this, McDowell. Malcolm and McDowell. He, he had a smaller part than me. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And he I, called I, them up. He called them and said, "I want to be in this movie." That's incredible. Yeah. I don't. Re- I don't think I realized that that was the only local production nominated that year. That's and it's so funny because it is viewed as this sort of weird French hybrid movie, but it makes amazing use of Los Angeles. The scenes in the Bradbury Building are astonishing. They're so beautiful. It's the best use of that. I think it uses it better than Blade Runner. There, I said it. It's blasphemy, <laughs> but I think it uses the Bradbury uh, Building better than Blade Runner. Well, thank um, you. I'll pass that along. <laughs> please do. Um, but yeah. So what? Absent dialogue, what are you relying on to tell the story? What are you, and I'm, I'm asking, I'm asking Beth the actor and Beth the director. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, it was a little bit easier for the artist because uh, we knew what we were saying, you know, even though we were acting it out, like, he's here. He's realized that you've been buying this, you know, la, 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 la. And uh, I don't think I had any dialogue with when he was discovering the furniture, I was trying to think if I had anything at the auction, but it was very clear what my action was, and it was totally just to be of service to the scene. I don't recall having any real challenges. It was just fun and thrilling, and they were so great, and yeah, it was just a blast. I just loved doing it, and um, we shot in, I, I wish I could remember, on Wilshire, the name of one of those fabulous uh, churches on Wilshire we shot down in the basement that's you know was all historical and then we shot in one of the mansions in Hancock Park and as you say everything was legitimate I mean this was a director who grew up loving American movies and this was his tribute to Charlie Chaplin to those great silent film actors and so uh, yeah, he took advantage of every inch of Los Angeles. So um, anyway, that was that. When I was directing, we did have the dialogue, and we had tailored these wonderful women, Lauren and Anna and um, uh, Jennifer, had taken me to breakfast. And I mean, they didn't come right out and ask me to direct, but they were talking about, well, who will direct? And it's we have a grant for uh, woman director, woman editor, woman DP, woman producer. Uh, uh, one more, I'm thinking of, but anyway, it was all women. And I said, would you like me to direct? And they said, yes, we would love that. And I said, okay, I would love to. I said, I would like to use um, Octavia Spencer because she was a dear friend of mine and we had done a play together and I loved her so much and she was close to my daughter. I said, and I would like to use my daughter. And uh, they said, oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, Anna had been in, they hadn't shot it yet though. It was before the help, but on a new Octavia, and I, maybe they were casting the help or something. And I think we all knew that that was going to be very big for Octavia. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, it was so strange when we were doing the Oscar rounds, the two movies, and I would run into all those people that I knew so well, you know, Allison Janney and everybody that was in the help. And Tate Taylor was a friend of mine. And I had done A Time to Kill with Tate and Octavia and Sandy in Jackson, Mississippi. And That's right. they had That's driven right. out here and they had we had done a short film that Sandy directed and then they had come to see me in a play and then that playwright had, Del Shores had written the, this play for Octavia and I and cast Tate. I mean, you know, it was a small little circle and here we are sort of um, in competition for the Oscar. It was so bizarre, but we kept it very friendly and I was rooting for them and I certainly was rooting for Octavia and Bernice, who was so lovely, really was in the wrong category. She should have been in Best Actress. Bernice Bejo, the the lead uh, in. Yeah, yeah. uh, for some reason, you know how they make these decisions, who knows, but um, she should have been in Best Actress. And she came to me, she said, I know, I can't do a French accent, but she's so sweet. She said, I know your friend Octavia is going to win and don't worry 
category. I'm in the wrong category and I understand and she should win. So I knew that it was okay for me to be excited. And at the SAG Awards, I was glad we had had that conversation because when Octavia won, I mean, I left my body. I think Missy Pyle and I both stood up spontaneously because Missy's a friend of Octavia's cheering. And then Octavia happened to walk right by our table to like, she was two inches from me and she looked at me and, and we were, I had tears in my eyes. And so I know that it probably wasn't appropriate, but <laughs> Berenice had given me her blessing. So I knew. And then at the Oscars, we were at the Oscar party my husband and I, and when it came time for supporting actress, we sort of stole away to a private area where there was a screen. So we, cause we knew she was going to win. And Mary was at Juilliard then and she had all her friends in the break room and they were watching and we had her on the phone. I still makes me cry. And then that moment when Octavia won, I mean, we just, we held in our screams, but we were so, so deeply happy that, you know, this very unlikely uh, candidate from when I knew her, you know, in, in Mississippi. So anyway, I don't know why I got off on that. You said you didn't mind tangents. So I, I welcome them. I, I, I welcome them. It, it strikes me from the way you're talking that you probably run a very warm set when you're directing. I feel like you, 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 you cherish ensemble work. You, you strike me as someone who's, who's looking out for your scene partners on a couple of fronts. Um, have you directed since? Do you want to direct more? Oh, you know, it's so sad to me that I haven't. I I loved it, and um, I even pitched it as a feature uh, to be developed into a feature because I thought these uh, seven women's lives, we could do, you know, sort of a European version of back and forth with their stories leading to the moment that they run into each other at this dress shop. Um you know, and uh, Lauren, when I was going to write it, but then she got very busy. She had a movie uh, at Sundance and, you know, so she didn't really have time to write with me. And I'm not someone that likes to work alone. I just really like people. And um, so I don't know, I just never developed that. And I've thought about it. I have a project now that I would love to direct that I've been working on for a long time. And I have a way of shooting it that would be it's never easy, but I understand how to shoot it. You know, it's a, it would be a, a combination of theater and film. And so I thought I haven't pitched it to anyone, um, but, but it's in pretty good shape. I've done a, quite a few readings over the years. So we'll see. I might. I'm considering it once the pandemic is over. We were just about to do a workshop in New York when the pandemic happened. We had sublet a apartment over in the Flatiron District, a loft, and we were all set to, do, to start workshopping it, but um, we'll see if uh, once, once I feel really, you know, safe. <laughs> sure, sure. No, it's a huge undertaking. Um, I want to talk about the Mindy Project for a little bit, um, which is, um, it's so fun. It, it's such an interesting uh, arc from a business standpoint. You are fired in the pilot. Yeah. You, you, you are fired. You punch the lead, you break her nose. And then 15 episodes later, you are rehired because you have sued for age discrimination. So what, how, like, did, was that second phone call a huge surprise when you were invited back? Oh my God. Well, I, I mean, it was, it was so much fun. And I, I had realized I didn't really know her work on The Office. I mean, I, I remember seeing, I didn't watch The Office regularly. I have now seen it all. But uh, when I watched, I noticed her and I thought, she's good. There's something about her delivery. She's good. She knows comedy. I didn't know she was a writer on the show as well. Didn't know her background of writing a play in New York. Jeff Daniels saw the play. Didn't know any of that. Just thought she was a, an actress. But I liked her. And that was the only thing I knew about her. So that when we were shooting that that first episode, I was watching her as well as being in the scene, you know, as an old timer. And I'm looking at her, I'm thinking, man, she's good. But she's writing, she's producing, and she's starring. Holy moly, how's she going to pull this off? And she did this, had this one moment in her office where she, as the character, just laid down on the floor and did the scene lying on the floor with Ike Barinholtz. 
And I said, she's a genius. That is so real. That is something I've done when I had worked in production. I would get exhausted. I would lie on the floor. There was another woman when I worked in the Jimmy Carter campaign. I would walk into her office. She would lie on the floor. I don't know if men do it, but I had seen it done and I had done it. And there it was. And I said, okay, I have to support her. How do I support her? I love her. I want to do anything I can. I thought it was going to be a regular on Mockingbird Lane, a Brian Fuller project that I had done the, with the, Mon Eddie the Monsters Izzard. reboot. Right. And uh, we thought it was going to go. I mean, we had this fabulous cast, and I was to be uh, Eddie Izzard's minion. And I love Brian Fuller, one of my best friends. I dream still to work with him full time every day. And um, I thought that's what was going to happen. I said, well, maybe, maybe though, since it's the same, uh, since it's universal, maybe they'll allow me to guest star occasionally. You know, who knows? So sure enough, they did call for one episode. Um, but then they, I don't know what happened. They ended up cutting all of that out. And then they called me back for another guest star. And I was at a meeting on the Hill, and I had turned my phone off coming home got in the door, turned my phone on, and I had like 52 messages, you know. And I was going, what is going on? My agent, call, call, call. So I, and I call and she says, wait a minute, we got to get so-and-so. So they have like, you know, she's on the phone and then the agent covering it's on the phone. My manager at the time's on the phone. And I said, what's happening here? They said, they want you to be a regular. <laughs> I said, what? I cannot tell you how shocked I was. But the voodoo behind this is that, because I loved her so much, I came home when I wrapped on that first episode, and she was on the cover of Emmy magazine, and I, to I told Michael, I said, get me a big piece of cardboard, because Octavia had done a, a what did she call it, a vision board. Vision board, yeah. And all the stuff she had put on her vis vision board had come true. She got to meet Oprah, she got to meet President Obama, she got an Academy Award, all that, you know. And she hadn't done it with much faith. She had done it because somebody told her to, and she put it in the back of her closet. She forgot about it. And then one day she pulled it out and she went, Ooh, it all happened. And I never wanted to do it because I, I don't know what's good for me. I don't want to wish for anything specific. I, it might be the worst thing in the world. So, But I had put Mindy on a vision board. But I promise you, I never thought for a second of being a regular. I just wanted to love her, support her, and see this woman do it all. You know, we've seen men do it, but I've never seen a woman really do it all. And that's all I wanted as an old feminist, as a bra burner. I just wanted <laughs> psychic energy to support her. And so I told my agent that day, I said, you know, I hate to tell you, but I got a picture of her on a vision board behind my china cabinet. <laughs> it gave us a little weird. But anyway, it was such an honor what to was work the, with her. What, what do you think was the secret to Beverly's appeal? What was it that, that people <laughs> latched onto about her? Because she was a, I mean, fan favorite doesn't do the reaction justice. I mean, oh, people love you. that character. Oh, thank you so much. I, You know, she was just so wild. It was those brilliant writers. They gave me, I mean, I was the prostitute example for Catcher in the Rye. I had had an affair with Bernie Sanders in Moscow. That's I mean, right. on and on. I, you know, I was on a website called, uh, I mean, an app called Timber for, uh, what is it, loggers looking for trouble. I mean, it was just <laughs> such wild stuff that I think that was probably the appeal, those brilliant lines that I got to say, and I didn't ever have to put anything on it. I just had to say them like Beverly would. You know, I, one of my other favorites, uh, we're talking about masturbation. Chris Messina's character had been caught masturbating, and da 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 And I say, I'm in part of the group discussion, and I don't see what the big deal is. I masturbate all the time. I did during this conversation. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's pretty wild. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. It kind of comes back to the Clue Gulliger stuff of like, how do you find the sexuality of this character? Beverly is so sexualized. Yeah, she's been around and she, she's still looking for trouble. She she's is. still looking for trouble. That I mean, that is a, you know, there, there's so many, uh, uh, you guys, the the whole office goes out drinking or whatever. There's so many incidents of uh, of of Beverly kind of owning her sexuality in a way that we don't see, we hardly ever see young women do in uh in in television or in film and it, i think there's something very liberating about i know there's something very liberating in the way that was handled 
well, yeah, as an older woman, to be able to have all that fun stuff is great. You know, it's, I did it, well, I, I'm really getting on a tangent here, but it just, I was going to go off on another, I did a nude scene at age 60, which is, you know, so bizarre. The movie hasn't ever come out, but I don't think it was because of me. But I called my husband, I said, you know, I knew I had a sex scene, but they didn't leave me a costume in here. I just have a bathrobe. And he said, oh, do it, do it. It'll empower you. Do it, do it. That's the kind of husband I have. In fact, on Six Feet Under, I am going on a tangent. Alan Ball had had me in a couple of times, and for various reasons, I had not gotten the role. Uh, and he, so they, this, I think the fourth or fifth time, they sent me this script, an offer to play this character, and she had this sex scene with Peter Krause. And uh, it, Peter Krause, right? He was the I star. Think, I think it's Krause, uh, but yeah. Yeah. So um, I went to my husband and I said, honey, listen, you know, they're asking me again for Six Feet Under, but it has this sex scene. And if you don't want me to do it, I won't do it. It doesn't matter to me. He said, let's rehearse. Oh, nice. That's beautiful. <laughs> That's my husband. And so the same thing with the nude scene. And he loved Beverly. In fact, I was a little depressed one day after the first couple of seasons. I don't, I don't know why, but... And he put together a whole bunch of my one-liners in a montage and sent it to me. Oh. And I said, God bless his sweetheart. You know, he just is the most supportive guy, and he really loves all my crazy characters. And, you know, he talked about sexuality, though. It applies with everything. Like, I would say in The Rookie with Dennis Quaid. Yeah. Totally a sex vibe. Yeah. I played Dennis Quaid's mother, but I was totally in love with him. And I think it reads, there's this yeah. one walk and talk scene between the two of us, and you see the intimacy, you see the history, and it was because I fell in love with him. I'm not trying you to know. be an idle flatterer, but you're maybe 20 minutes older than Dennis Quaid. That's ridiculous. <laughs> um, I don't want to... Well, I'm not they gonna... added. They added great. And I had to play her younger. I had to play her at 32 also. Okay. So, okay. In All fact, right. they kept worrying about my old age, and I said... I'm more worried about 32. Let's let's do the te camera test on 32. <laughs> you strike me as someone who is uh, um, not just a, a practitioner, but a, a big fan. Who were some character actors that you you loved growing up? Who were some people like sort of maybe in the corner of the screen who were like, oh, that's that's fun. I could do well, that. Well, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I I'm not one of those people that loved character actors. I didn't. I I don't know. I grew up. I didn't read the credits. I mean, now of course it's a whole other thing. Okay, so tell me right now, who is it? Uh, well, who? now I mean, I Thelma Ritter. You know, oh, Thelma Ritter. I mean, oh, my God. Thelma she, Ritter in Rear Window is probably one of my first crushes. I mean. One of the best ever. So dry. So I learned dry. so much from her. My teacher taught me about Colleen Dewhurst mm. and her pain, the pain that she carries in all of her characters. You know, I mean, she mostly did stage, but she did Twilight Zone. She did some TV movies and. But she just, she had heft. She was a big lady, mm -hmm. but she was so vulnerable and carried such pain. Maureen Stapleton, you know, her nervousness in airport. I think that's what she won the Oscar for, wasn't it? But boy, what a sense of humor. Talk about body and sexual. I think she, she said, well, it wasn't as good as getting laid, getting the Oscar. I mean, you know, pretty funny stuff. I stopped her on the street when I was a kid. I had seen Reds way too young, and I stopped her on the street and got her autograph one time. She couldn't have been more gracious. <gasps> you did. Yeah, oh, I, I would have been like, shit, 13 oh. maybe. Um, and she was really lovely. Maureen Stapleton, well, first off, in Reds as Emma Goldman, that's, I mean, everyone in that movie is fantastic, but she's really something special in that. But then you you fast forward like six or seven years, she's in um, that very, very broad comedy, Johnny Dangerously with Michael Keaton. And she's magnificent doing very, very broad, silly stuff, but she crushes that too. And they're within like six or seven years of each other. They couldn't be more distinct performances, but she was a treasure. Ah, oh, she really was. One of the biggest compliments I ever had, and this is not about acting per se, but my teacher, I used to think that 
you know, as, um, you know, I had studied Stanislavski and I would really love, I love to emote. I loved emotion and, you know, I would do these dramatic things and I loved carrying them home. Honestly, I thought that made me great. And my teacher, you know, started talking to me about it. I was doing a play at the time and I guess I was carrying it to class and he said, you know, you can drop it. And I said, what do you mean? No, I can't. And he said, Maureen Stapleton was pretty good, right? And he talked about her, and uh, they had done Rose Tattoo. Mm. And they would be rehearsing. She'd be doing a big dramatic scene. She'd be crying. And then it'd be lunchtime. She'd say, oh, it's lunchtime. Who's going to Joe Allen's? You know, dropped it. And I said, well, I don't see how she could. I don't drink, and I, I can't go have a pastrami sandwich. You know, I was like saying, I, that's a whole different thing. My instrument is so sensitive. But over time, I heard him. And I was doing a play where I played a battered wife with Octavia, mm. trailer trash housewife. And it was causing havoc at home. I had a child. You know, I was happily married. I didn't want to bring it home. So I started practicing. Let's see if I can drop it. And by gosh, I learned to drop it. I'd leave it at the theater. And later I was doing a movie Clint Eastwood was directing. And I forgot. It wasn't a big emotional scene, but it was emotional. And I was joking around with the crew. And then it was time to shoot. And we'd do the thing. And I come in. And this, his first AD said, you know who you remind me of? And I said, who? And he said, Maureen Stapleton. I said, oh, my God. He said, it, but it wasn't about the work. He said, yeah, she does a big emotional scene. And then she drops it. And that's what you do. And I went, oh, my God, there's my teacher would be so happy to hear that I finally learned to do that. And your work didn't your work didn't suffer. You're still oh, doing I amazing it, work. I think it's better. Yeah. I think my, my my emotions are so available to me now at this age. I've relaxed into the work so much. I don't worry about them being there. I trust that they will be there. And they always are if I need it. Always. hundred percent. And I do far less than I used to. I mean, I can still chew the scenery. One reason I love being on doll faces because I, my care. I mean, it's me, but I have an animated head. I play a cat, right? Basically. And so I can chew the. They want more facial expression. They want more. I love it <laughs> because it's like I never get to do that, and so it's it's great fun for me to chew the scenery. But yeah, I've learned restraint, and I've learned to just be all those things that were taught in acting school. But then I push so often in my career and I, you know, I wish I could, not always, you know, but it took a long time for me to really learn to just be there, just do it, just say the line. The relaxation is the hardest part I find, you know, because yeah. we're, we're, we live under such anxiety of like, oh, this job, I need to make this job work because it, it's going to lead to another yeah. job. And, and you just get into this place of, of fear and you do not do your best work. Even if you're in a horror movie, you do not do your best work when you're scared. You simply yeah. don't. You know, Jennifer what? Jason Lee said to me, I do my best work when I'm tired. Mm. Stephen Topolowsky said, I did my best work ever when my children were little and I wasn't sleeping and I was exhausted. So I couldn't push. And I, I think there's really something to that. Definitely. I really do. Was there a role that, that got away from Beth Graham? Well, many, many, many roles. <laughs> Damn, Kathy Bates. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she is but, not on the vision board. She is on the dart board. <laughs> but, you know, I love her. I, no, she's you great. Know, and we're friends. And she has directed me. I mean, she's great. But, um, yeah, but I will say at the time I thought that, that they got away. And it wasn't just her. But then I see the movie and I go, oh, oh, okay. They're doing so. I didn't do that. That wasn't my choice. This is, <laughs> I see what they were doing. Uh, I'll tell you a funny one is Titanic. Uh, it's so great to be old because I'll tell anything now. I don't care who hears it. You know, it's fine with me. James Cameron, how you doing? Um, <laughs> so there's a thing that some of us uh, a, a character actors, uh, we are called pacer horses. What, what that means is there's an offer out to a star who hasn't accepted the deal yet. They're negotiating. So they call in the pacer horses, people who can do the role, but who aren't stars. But worst case scenario, they can pop us in if they need to. I've done that many times. Sometimes I get it. It happens. Uh, it happened on Donnie Darko. Oh, really? I got, I got it. Sometimes it happens, but a lot of times it doesn't happen. But I'm pretty much used to it. So anyway, Titanic, they call me in. Molly Brown? Yeah, for Molly Brown. So I had read the script. When I read that script, 
I put my head on the kitchen table and sobbed. That ending made me sob. I loved it so much. I wanted to be in that movie. I thought this was like, it did not turn out to be that script, by the way. Mm. I, I did not account for all the special effects and all that stuff. It was a much bigger movie than I read. I mean, it was James Cameron. I shouldn't realize what he was going to do, but I thought it was going to be sort of a small movie. Isn't that hilarious? Anyway, um, I wanted that part so much. And sure enough, I got called in. And um, Mally Finn, rest her soul. So I get in there and I work really hard on the audition and I think I've got it. She really gives me some direction. I know I'm a pacer horse. I'm sure there's an offer out, but I'm, I'm really wanting it. And then I hear back from my agent, you're in the mix. How many times do we hear that? You're in the mix. So then, you know, Kathy Bates gets it. She's shooting it. And then this is the story I heard that was in the background. First, she offered it to Kathy Bates. She turned it down. Then he offered it to Reba McIntyre. She turned it down. Then he went back to Kathy Bates, begged her to do it. She was considering it, but she hadn't said yes. He had a schedule. He had to get ready to go. Brings in the pacer horses, me and whoever else he brought in. He writes her a personal check for $100,000 to get her to do the role. And I hear this and I say, how bad was I? <laughs> you know, I was so much cheaper. How bad was I? Then I hear from my dear friend, Frances Fisher. She said, one day, Kathy comes to the set. She's happy. She's smiling. She's dancing. Frances said, why are you in such a good mood? She said, I just got my bonus. Another bonus. I heard a million dollars. If they went over six weeks, she got a million dollars. So apparently they did. Now, I don't know if that's true. I know the 100000 is true because I heard that from a very reliable source. I'm not sure about the million dollar bonus. But in any event, you say to yourself, how bad was I that he had to have her for that small role, you know? But I saw it and I went, okay, she did something different. I didn't do what she did. It's different. And it's funny. You, that's you, the way it is. It, 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 yeah, it hits you less. The older you get, the the longer you stay in this business, you, you I, I'm comfortable asking that question because most people have let it go. And it's now just an amusing anecdote. Um, much the same way I didn't get the role uh, I was up for in Avatar. Um, I was a pacer horse and Joel David Moore got it. And um, I'd never heard the term pacer horse. Oh, that's so funny. That's, that's, James, that's James Cameron again. Yeah, too. I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he loves yeah, pacer he, uh, horse. He, he loves a pacer horse, that one. He really <laughs> likes to put a little fire under the names. Uh, but but he, um, uh, yeah, I find that as you get older, you're like, okay, if not this one, something else, you know, it'll all, it'll all kind of uh, pan out in its time. Uh, just, I got to say this one thing, my mother, you mentioned my mother earlier, on her deathbed, I was apologizing to her for some bad behavior I had one more time. And she looked at me and she, I mean, as she was dying and she said, oh, Beth, everybody has their own path, which is such a simple thing to say. But boy, is that true. And I think we do have our own path. So you had your own path. That wasn't your movie. Beth, we're going to leave it there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Beth Grant. This was a delight. And that is an episode wrap on Beth Grant, who you can find on social media at Beth Grant Actor on both Twitter and Instagram. And you really should. Lately, she's been checking off a big item on the character actor bucket list. She's playing a judge on Goliath with Billy Bob Thornton. Forever Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Mm -hmm.